Welcome to Jeffrey R. DeRigo's Bunch of Stuff, an occasional podcast about writing, science fiction, and the stories that Jeff himself has published. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jeffrey R. DeRigo's Bunch of Stuff cast, the Heinlein Marathon episode number two. In this one, we're going to look at a book that I'd never seen, well, I'd never read before, released in 1953, clearly part of his juvie period. Uh, it's a title, Starman Jones. And let me say, before we go too much further into this, I absolutely loved reading this book. I could not put it down. And it's a book that doesn't have a tremendous amount of action or adventure in it, but it has enough, and it's a lot of fun. So, I'm not sure, again, who the audience for this is now. At the time it was written, it was probably teenage boys. It probably still is teenage boys, or, you know, 51-year-old dudes like me. But, um... It's a lot of fun. This one is third-person omniscient, so he breaks from his first-person present tense style that we talked about a little bit in in Podcane of Mars in our our last episode. And this one tells actually a similar story, although it came out 10 years earlier. So Heinlein definitely has a, uh, I guess a, I don't want to use the word shtick, because it's not the right word. He has his idiom. And that's and that's a lot of his books are about how one goes about traveling when one has no means. So in, in Podcane, if you remember, she traveled because her uncle was able to pressure the baby freezing place to pay for a ticket. Otherwise, she wouldn't be able to go. And in Starman Jones, our main character, uh, Max, he's able to travel because, well, let's talk a little bit about the plot of the story. Um, first off, let's let's introduce all of our characters. So there's Sam, or Sam Jones, who is a late teen, I, I'm going to guess, a late teenage boy who lives on a farm in somewhere in Appalachia, pretty sure it's Appalachia, whose only uh, dream in life is to go and be an interstellar astrogator, whether it's on a merchant ship or in the Space Navy or whatever, it doesn't matter. And to accomplish this, he has inherited his uncle's collection of astrogator textbooks, or guidebooks, as they're called in, in this, that the astrogators use to compute the path that their ships will take from one space anomaly to another. Effectively, and I'll talk about how Heinlein sees faster than light travel when we get to it a little bit later. But to, to, for, this, for, sake, for the sake of the argument, that's, that's pretty much all you need to know. When we meet Max, he's laying on a hillside with his one of his beloved books, and he's watching as a train a maglev train, I guess, comes barreling out of the side of a mountain, goes through these three suspended loops in free fall, and then goes into another tunnel. There's a metaphor in this that is played out with the way that the ship that ultimately he will be on travels, but it's a beautiful description of this sort of super high-speed train making the transit between two known safe places and one with one unknown unsafe place in between where there's enough drift and danger that everybody aboard the trains is in danger, but the odds are in favor that they won't get hurt. Okay? I thought that was super cool. So, Max returns home, realizes his stepmother has married a guy named Montgomery who's going to sell the farm and everything on it. They don't have a lot of stuff anyway. They're sort of dirt poor. Max has no shoes, for example. And Montgomery, at first, is sort of nice, And then, within a matter of minutes, starts to be abusive towards Max. First thing he wants to do is sell all of Max's uncle's astrogator textbooks. Once Max argues that he's not going to let him do that, 
It turns into a potential fist fight. Max takes off, but comes back later that night, sneaks into his room, and then steals the textbooks and leaves. Runs off. Last we see the farm until the very end of the book. While attempting to run away, not sure where he's going to go, knows that his uncle had always told him that he would make him the heir of his Astrogator textbooks and effectively set a place for him in the Astrogator's guild via family lineage. So what he has to do is go to the Astrogator's guild building, say who he is, try and find a way to prove that his uncle had made him an heir, or verify that his uncle had made him an heir with the guild, and then he could start to become an apprentice. It's a long way to get to Earthport, which is where the guild headquarters are. On his way... He runs into a, a, a guy who's sitting by a sort of small campfire cooking on the outskirts of town. He meets him. That's Sam. Sam uh, convinces Max to relax and, you know, talks to him about the farm a little bit, listens to his story, says that he probably should go back and fight for it because, you know, half of the farm is his at least, and he could probably make things difficult for Montgomery if... He went and he, he lodged a legal challenge. Uh, Max has no money and is so tired that after eating some of Sam's mulligan stew, he falls asleep. When he awakens the next morning, his ID card is gone and all of his books are also gone. And Sam is gone. It's great. Max is in a tough spot. Finds a truck stop. Finds a trucker who is, takes pity on him and also needs someone to sort of pretend to ride shotgun so he can get his load to Earthport. So Max, he agrees to take Max with him. Max helps him unload a couple of things here and there. And whenever they get stopped by the transit cops, Max pretends to be the other driver, curled up in a sleep in the sleeping area of the cab of this truck. Once Earthside, he learns from the guild that, one, someone has already come to the guild claiming to be him, and they have all of the books, and they have his ID. And they realize that he's really who he is. They verify that his uncle, who was, I guess, much beloved in the guild, did not name him as an heir. And there's nothing they can do to change that. But because he brought the books back, there's a bounty on the books. And they pay him a considerable sum of money for returning the books to them. The guild keeps all their books sort of secret. The books are only loaned out to astrogators. They're not owned. And and they have a huge deposit put on them. So the money that he gets is the deposit that his uncle had put in for the use of these books. When he leaves the Astro Guild, the uh, Astrogators Guild, he bumps into Sam. And is super angry. And Sam says, look... I wanted you to know that that's kind of how things kind of work. I wasn't sure if, you know, you, they had your uncle's information and you can't you can't blame a guy for trying. I want to get out of here. I want to go to space. So Max reveals to Sam that he has a little bit of money. And Sam says, well, look, if, if you let me help you, I can get us both out of here. I can get us onto a ship and get us get us off of Earth. Yeah, this, this, this actually works out. They take off. They end up on a ship called the Asgard which is, a, as Heinlein describes it, an upside-down or a pear standing up with the thin side of the pear pointing towards the Earth. Uh, so a big, round, bulbous, sort of light-bulb-looking spaceship, which is kind of cool. It's a freighter, and it carries passengers, and it's on its way to a place called Terra Nova, or Nova Terra. I think it's Nova Terra. It's, a, it's like a super-Earth where things are great, and everyone loves to be there. Through some chicanery, Sam is able to secure them some fake papers that make them both sort of the lowest rung crew members on the ship. Max gets a job pretty much taking care of all the animals and cargo and sweeping up animal poop. He has to go and clean up for the dozen or hundred and dozen or so cats that are aboard the ship. And he has to go, you know, deck by deck and clean all the litter boxes. That's his job, which sucks. 
Meanwhile, Sam ends up getting himself a job as like a policeman aboard the ship. So their plan is to go until they get to a place called Halcyon and then take off on Halcyon and and either make their own way and and start their life away from away from the ship cuz Sam explains that no matter how good the fake papers are that they get eventually the truth is going to catch up with their fake papers and they're going to be revealed to be full of shit. When they're revealed to be full of shit if they're still around to be prosecuted they will be. So the best thing is not to be around to be prosecuted. So they have this sort of hastily thrown together but grand plan to get to either Halcyon or 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 Nova Terra. I think it's maybe it's Nova Terra. And as soon as the ship is dirt side and they can get off, they're going to make their way, you know, miles and miles and miles out of town and build a farm and start their life. Uh, what happens is, though, is uh, turns out that Max has an unrevealed gift that he's never shared with anyone and it's not really never come up. And that's that he has a photographic memory. He can literally remember every single figure on all of the tables and all of the Astro Guild or Astrogator's Guild books because he's read them. And he memorizes everything that he reads, reads, and it's photographic. He can't interpret it, but he can remember it factor by factor. You wouldn't think that this would be a, a superpower, but it kind of is. To shorten the plot, and we'll, we'll shorten the plot, and then I'll start to talk about what I like and don't like and, and everything else about this book. We, Sam gets a better job because he befriends a, a girl on board the ship who comes to visit her pet named Mr. Chips. Mr. Chips is, a, is what's called a spider puppy. He's got eight legs and sort of a puppy-like face and can speak a little bit. And really likes Max, and Max really like takes good care of Mr. Chipsy, or Chipsy as he's known, and this woman named Ellie or Eldreth. Uh, it turns out is the like the heir to the largest fortune in the entire galaxy, and she's been put on this this merchant ship by her father to get her away from a boyfriend. We we learn that later in the story. Once she sort of takes a shine to Max, she does something that gets Max lifted out of cat shit duty, kind of brought upstairs. He ends up. Because of his credentials, his fake credentials, he ends up serving in the the what's called the worry hole or the bridge as a not an officer but as a enlist, sort of enlisted enlisted sailor who has a particular job. I think it's like man helping to man the radio or something or the computer. Anyway, it's a job that he has. He said he applied in, in his in his records. He applied for that job in the guild but didn't get it, and they need a person, so he gets the job. And it turns out because of his him demonstrating his gift just through the, the the way that he works his skills are noticed by by the crew that's on the bridge now the crew is like there's captain blair who's never on the bridge there's dr hendrix who's the chief astrogator there's uh, mr symes who's the assistant astrogator there's kelly who's the chart man there's uh, Corneth or something who's like the computer guy there's there's another computer guy and whatever Max is somebody who, who knows the tables that they're working from by rote, by memory and can index them faster in his mind than they can on paper and because he's so fast he's able to help them compute the trajectory that the Asgard has to take to get to and then eventually get through these space anomalies so this kind of happens and, and as it turns out uh, Max's skills are so good that both Kelly, he's he's a scientist to, to 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 work with watch officers, and Kelly teaches him all about how the bridge works by making him do all the tasks on the bridge. Symes is kind of a big giant jerk who's afraid that that Max is sort of angling for his job, even though he barely knows him. Doctor Hendricks it starts to teach him how to be an astrogator and uses his skills to help verify all of his calculations that they use in this sort of big sort of fucking univac type computer that they have that is what makes the 
the ship navigation system work. It's, it's, it's kind of ingenious the way Heinlein describes it, and I'll get to that in, in a bit too. Things start to go things start to go bad once they've made three transitions. And they're getting ready to make their last transition, which will bring them out near to Novaterra. But as they're getting ready for that transition, Dr. Hendricks dies. He has a heart attack or something. No one's really sure, but he, he passes away. And that promotes Symes to be the lead astrogator. Uh, when that happens, the captain promotes Max to be the assistant astrogator. And Symes immediately resents that he's in that position and like really starts to work him hard and be a giant dick to him and to everybody else on the bridge. The rest of the bridge crew understands that Max really sort of knows what he's doing, but because there's a hierarchy, he has to be careful with how he proceeds. Okay, sort of makes sense that way. As they're getting ready to do the last transit, with the captain now taking the role of the the lead astrogator, he works differently than Dr. Hendricks did, and that sort of throws Max off. Uh, when he goes to correct some figures that the captain asked that that Symes gives to the captain. Symes tells him to shut up, and the captain takes these erroneous figures, and they end up lost in space, with really no hope to get back. So then, they decide to put down on a planet to figure out what to do next, and they may have to settle there because they don't have a choice. So this is the, they're they're ultimately doing a survey of a new part of space that no one has ever been to because they popped out into an unknown area. And during this time on this planet. All kinds of shit goes awry, and Max ends up having to take control of the Asgard and try and find a way to get it back either to known space or back on course to where they had left, and he manages to do it. This book is like 70-some-odd years old, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything for you, and chances are you're not going to read it anyway, so so there's that. In the middle of, of all of these other events, there's stuff that goes on like Max and Eldreth become very close, but they don't become lovers. They become very close friends. They bond over playing three-dimensional chess, which ultimately got pilfered and used in Star Trek 10 years later, 15 years later or something, uh, which he Heinlein describes in detail in this book. And it seems to be the same rules that they used in Star Trek. And I had a 3D chess set when I was in like eighth grade. I used to play with my friend Chris Mendonca. And ultimately, we ended up using the same rule set that Heinlein sort of builds into this. So I don't know if he invented it, but he certainly invented the rules that I had for my version of 3D chess that I played as a kid. It's because of his growing relationship with her that he sort of learns the truth about the planet that they land on and, and ridiculously named Charity. So so like like Heinlein's other books, like let's talk a little bit pl about plot structure, right? So Podkane had like three parts. Podkane getting kind of familiar with what it's like to leave Mars and be aboard the Tricorn. There's the life on the Tricorn with the big radiation storm in the middle. Then there's the getting to know... The part two is getting to know the world on Venus, right? And then part three is the kidnapping. So there's three parts to the, to the story with some stories built in. This book follows the same sort of structure. Max gets to the ship as like the act of number one. Once he's on the the Asgard and it, and it takes off, that's the beginning of act number two. Act um, In act number two, Max works his way up until he's on the bridge crew and things go horribly wrong. They put down on charity. And then act number three is a sort of an adventure story where Max and Eldreth are captured by the, the what seem to be the dominant inhabitants of, of charity and are whisked away from, from the civilization that they were starting to build and sort of treated like pets or animals. And there's a suggestion that they might be eaten. There's a suggestion that they might just be taken someplace and killed. There's a suggestion that they might be fed to these other animals until ultimately they get rescued, but they're gone for a while. 
And it doesn't seem like that until ultimately they get rescued by Sam, who who figures out where they are because of, of Chipsy, the spider uh, puppy. Anyway, again, it's I'm dragging plot in. So there's like four segments here. What ties all these segments together is that ultimately this book is a discussion sort of about rules. And, and again, uh, well, let, me, let me do this. Let's, let's talk about what I like. Uh, there's a theme in this book about rules and that rules are there to be guide guideposts and guardrails to keep a society functioning in the macrocosm of this story it's the society aboard the asgard from captain blaine through the the worry whole crew to the regular stewards to the class of passengers to the function functionaries underneath who who maintain order all the way down to the guy who cleans the cat shit out of all the cat shit boxes there's a structure to that society and it has to be upheld and there are rules that make that structure possible what Heinlein does that I really loved in this book is he immediately shows that Max is someone who can almost innately understand that while most people see those rules as monolithic barriers or impediments to to the behavior that they want to do Max is flexible enough to work around them and benefit from that ability to be flexible. He learns that from Sam. Sam sort of brings that out of him. But as time goes on, he becomes less flexible because the rules become more important. They're a lot less important when you're a runaway with a handful of books than they are when you're the captain of a ship that you're trying to lead back into known space. So there are, there are times like when, when he transitions above sea deck, that's when he becomes a member of the of the worry hole, the watch crew. And from that moment to when he becomes an officer, he's field promoted to an officer because of his skill set, that he has to rein in his natural ability to sort of try and stay out of the limelight because he's sort of in the background doing this sort of, running this sort of scam to get to another world so he can get free or to get away. And when it's discovered that he's done that, and again, the rules always catch up with the person who breaks them. That's a, a theme in this book. He, his, his value is such that those who have the ability to punish him for that choose not to. Part of that choosing not to is because Max proves himself to not only be a, a somebody with a skill towards astrogating, but proves himself to be a good person. He's reliable. He's jovial. He's ambitious. He's, not, he's ambitious, but not in a way that's negative. He's enthusiastic. He's interested. He works hard. He tries hard. He's always questing to learn and to get better at what he does so that he can do what he does better. And because of that, that sort of ultimately outweighs the restrictions that are sort of, or the the rules that are required for him to be punished by. They can be set aside for a while, as 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 Doctor Henderson put uh, Hendricks puts it when he when he he promotes him, field promotes him to like a junior astrogator apprentice, like level one or something when he first gets his first field promotion. And sort of because of that, when he has to be the person that adheres to the rules so that society doesn't fall apart, he is able to do it even though it goes against his nature because he's matured to the point that he now understands why those rules are important. And it begins with him, again, moving to the officer class of this ship. He's given a small room of his own, which has a bunk, a table, a chair, and a cabinet in it. 
and he's amazed and he doesn't want to live there. He wants to stay with the regular guys that he's used to debunking with in the dormitories downstairs. And, and the, you, you can't because now you're here. You're one of this class. You have to have the trappings of this class. You're going to wear this uniform. You have to be up here with us. And as time goes on and those trappings get more weighty and they come with more responsibilities and they come with more problems in the, 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 uh, the, the character of, of Mr. Symes, they become the thing that that keeps Max from from making a mistake that could cost the lives of everybody aboard the ship. And and Heinlein Heinlein's books tend to do this surprisingly often. Like iconoclastic characters are nothing new for him. Sam is an iconoclastic character, although when he bumps into Max as the the, the book goes on, he's in and out of trouble. But more often than not, out of trouble because he too has a set of sort of secret skills, saying that with air quotes, that demonstrate his value to the vessel and to the crew of the vessel that he's on. So even though he is also found out later to be as full of shit with his credentials as Max is, they're able to put that aside by virtue of the situation that they find themselves in and the necessity that they need for his skills at the time. So it's it's kind of clever and fun the way that he does that. I, I really I really it really resonated with me as the story went on, and it starts all the way back with with um, Max getting the ride from 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 Red the truck driver, where Red says, "Look, I need another guy to pretend to be a truck driver who just lays in the back whenever we get stopped by the transit cops, and you know can answer a question or two if they need to, because I'm only allowed to drive eight hours, but I've got 24 hours to drive." And I've got nobody to drive with because my second driver, you know, is a drunk asshole and I had to throw him out. So right from the very beginning, Max shows that he's willing to flex the rules to achieve a goal. And if it seems like no one's going to be hurt by that goal, so much the better. And so he does that. This, this, this little story of him riding with Red, Max and Red in the truck, getting to Earthport, uh, sort of tells the story of the rest of the story in a super duper condensed and way less exciting component. If you're just looking at character development. Now we'll learn later that Sam too, uh, is a little bit morally flexible. And that's because at one point we don't know when, cause we don't know the details. He was a, he was an interstellar Marine and is really, really, really tough. And we, we, we learn this when he is put in a position where he has to like, sign- he, he, he wades into a fight once things have kind of gone wrong on the ship and he beats the ever-loving shit out of a bunch of people. And I'm not going to say they didn't didn't deserve it, but uh, the way that it's related to Max is like, yeah, your friend Sam was down there and he like was like in there knocking people out cold. Like nobody knew enough to mess around with him. There's also a point where he's, he's challenged about something and demonstrates his skill by taking this person to like an uninhabited part of the ship and taking off all of his his sort of police officer type garb and they have a fight and he beats that guy senseless but doesn't kill him. That guy sort of becomes Sam's like number one man because he knows Sam beat the shit out of him and could have killed him and chose not to. So there's that, right? And Sam, Sam's a lot smarter than he lets on. He seems to know a lot more and only reveals information to Max when it's necessary. And like Uncle Tom in Podcane of Mars and ultimately like the teacher in 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 Starship Troop, Mr. Du Bois, the, the, the history and moral philosophy professor, he reveals things as they're necessary. He becomes like that moral counterpoint in the story 
or that that moral point in the story that shows up and delivers just the right amount of information at the right time to 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 shove the character in the direction that will make the story continue on in a way that is believable or reasonable. Uh, really enjoyed it. Love the dialogue, especially the dialogue with Sam and Max, especially the dialogue with Eldreth and Max, who, like all of Highline's women, especially at this point, is described only as handsome. But then again, Max is never described at all other than not having shoes. So I suppose it makes sense. But she's described as handsome. Later, Max describes her as the most beautiful woman he's ever seen, and that's when they're when they're being herded off by these 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 alien sort of centaur monsters. But she is that female character who's like a like a sidekick type guy, full of ledger domain and daring do, and 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 sort of plays against type as that the daughter of a famous you know galactic magnate by being tomboyish and super smart and 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 really self-assured and not trapped into the trappings of whatever her society are so she can pass as anyone and I'm sure that down the road as I read more and more of this character in Heinlein's books I'm going to get sick of it but I enjoyed it here because Eldreth provided the other the other side of the coin that Sam provides. Sam is the the flexible, unknown adventurer type side of the coin, and Eldreth is the chess piece side of the coin. She's the one who is far more rule oriented and understands the rules of society and how to work within them, whereas Sam prefers to work outside of them. So they provide a nice count point counterpoint. And Max, for for all of his in betweenism for these two manages pretty well to straddle both of their personality types and be his own person. So, I don't know, that's just me. The other stuff that I really dug in this was the way that Heinlein explains the way that they do faster than light travel. And again, I don't know that he does this in the other books. We'll see. The next book I'm reading is The Cat That Walks Through Walls, or The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, and we'll see if this is carried on in there. But Max explains it to Eldreth like this because she doesn't understand how they travel, is that the, the Asgard never breaks light speed. It gets close to it, just as they're making the transition from one part of space to the other. And as Max describes space and, and interstellar travel to Eldreth, it's like space is all sort of crumpled up on itself. We can't perceive it that way, but that's kind of how it is. And there are places where the shortest distance between this piece of space and that piece of space is across one of the crumples. So the idea that you're sort of folding space. This would go on and be used as a trope in thousands upon thousands of science fiction stories and movies and stuff since then. And I don't know that this is the first time it appears, but it's the first, this is the earliest I've seen it in writing. Imagine space itself is three-dimensional for us, but in that weird fourth dimension, it's all crumpled together. And when you get the ship to a point where there's a known crumple and a known uh, place where the two parts of space touch, you can travel a significantly shorter distance to go from one part of space to the other, even though you're technically crossing billions of light years to get there. What they've done is they've, you know, different ships have found anomalies and mapped where they bump out and found other civilizations and other planets to live on in those places. And in doing so have created this map of the of the the sort of known universe that people tend to follow, but there are there are more anomalies out there that haven't been discovered. Absolutely, so there's always the potential that any ship that's traveling may 
may find an anomaly and find itself lost in space, or will deviate from the known course from one end of the anomaly to the other and find themselves lost in space or time. Remember, at the very beginning of this book, there's a bit where Max is laying in the grass and he's watching the Earthport Express jump from one tunnel to another tunnel through these three big rings that are suspended across a valley. There's no train between, there's no track between those two tunnels. And what, what, what's doing is there's magnetism in those, there's magnetism in those rings that keeps the train kind of going into the next tunnel. Really strong winds can push it one way or the other. There's very, there's variability in the way that it travels. And one inch one way or one inch the other way can sometimes be the difference between a train going straight through and a train going straight into the side. What we learn in the beginning is is Max is, is looking and he can see where some number of years before, maybe 20 years before, a train had drifted enough that it smashed into the side of the mountain instead of in, going into the tunnel where it belongs and killed hundreds upon hundreds of people. So when you're piloting a ship through one of these anomalies, it's like jumping from one tunnel through those rings to another tunnel, except there are no rings and you're doing it in the dark and you don't have any windows and you're only flying by instruments and you're not even sure if that tunnel is really there because it may have moved since the last time anybody flew through it. That's sort of how he describes it. Thought that was brilliant. Amazing. Loved it. Loved, loved the description. Loved the way that it worked. I understood it. It made the idea of that sort of fourth dimensional on top of third dimensional space relevant for me and, and rational. And it was really, really clever. I loved it. Thought it was great. The other stuff that I really liked was once they get into the end of the second act as, as things go, go bad in the worry hole and they end up in unknown space, um, society Im- almost immediately begins to break down. And it breaks down from the top towards the bottom. So what happens is the Dr. Henderson dies. As they're flying through Mr. Symes' uh, hubris and dislike of, of, of Max makes him shoot down Max's discussion, uh, suggestion that there's a flaw in the set of figures that they're using. And, and, and let me explain very briefly sort of how they do this. So charting an anomaly means that they do this, right? They're, they know that they're in a particular point of space because they keep taking photographs, photographic plates of the space in front of them and matching it to stars that are already mapped. Okay, so that gives them their bearings. Because again, you're in three-dimensional space inside of a four-dimensional space area. Go figure. So it's it's visual. And then they're calculating based on the amount of solar radiation they're receiving from all these different stars exactly where they are and exactly where the anomaly is. And then, based on where they are and where the anomaly is, they correct course to near light speed so that they can make that jump from one piece of space to the other piece of space, sort of that's the three the three hoops that the train goes through between one tunnel and the other. Except you have to calculate those three hoops or the equivalent of that course every single time you transit. And if you're off even by a degree, you could pop out in a place that you don't recognize, that no one recognizes because it's never been mapped before. So anyway, Dr. Henderson, whose who's approach to making these space jumps was incredibly methodical working with the computer tables the tables in the book and the photographs in a very methodical step-by-step manner 
uh, and not moving forward until he was sure of the move he was he was making now was correct. That when he dies, and the captain comes to the to the bridge, to the worry hole to run the next transition, he has a different methodology, where he's taking the calculations in from Symes first, from Kelly second, and then from Max third. And then on the fly, he's recalculating and building his arc to determine the power level to get the Asgard to the point in space it needs to be so that they can jump to near light speed to make this cross over the bridge from one piece of space to the other piece of space across the anomaly. And when Max realizes that Symes transposes an 8 and a 5 in this long string of digits and calls it out, Symes tells him he's full of shit. Kelly says he can't spot the error right away. They don't have time. The captain goes with it. And they pop out into space. And no one recognizes the sky that they see. That's when they know that they're lost. The captain loses his mind. um, Not long after that. As they're looking for a place to put down. The captain stops coming to the bridge. Symes makes this brutal. Brutal watch schedule. that, that, That runs Max and the other. The other bridge crew to the ragged edge. And Symes becomes more and more dictatorial. The captain, the captain brings the ship down onto this planet. They, the, 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 they, they pretty much tells the, finally tells the passengers, look, we're lost. We don't know where we are. We're going to stay here for a little while and try and figure it out. But we don't know. We, we probably would urge you to start a civilization here because since we're on un- unknown space, we, we don't know that we can get back, let alone how we can get back. And then he disappears. And he stops coming out of his cabin. So this becomes like a topic of conversation among the officers who say that he's running himself ragged trying to calculate a way to get them back to where they were or has lost his mind because of what's going on and can't go on anymore. He's like, he's going bananas. This is when ultimately Eldreth or Ellie and and Max go for a, a walk and are captured by the centaur monsters and sort of dragged off. We get a little description of the flora and fauna of, of, of Charity. Um, before then, as a couple is, gets married and they build a little village and they build one log cabin and people are starting to settle into the idea that they can use the, the, the livestock that's on the ship to sort of have livestock and start to build a government and start to dole out jobs and start to build things. Meanwhile, people are still living on the ship, which is dirt side, as they call it, because there isn't enough shelter for other people, to, for everybody to live just on the planet. Again, we're human, so we think that we're king shit, right? Turns out that the centaurs are way smarter than we think they are. They've been watching us from afar. They're they're primitive in a sense that they don't have technology that we understand, but they do have some technology. And they capture Eldreth and they capture Max and drag them off. The society that they have is interesting too in that it seems to be patriarchal, but we don't know the gender of any of the centaurs. And um, there's a seems to be like a chieftain to their group. There's a, an alliance between these sort of floating jellyfish monsters um, that appear to be benign and the centaurs themselves, who turns out that those things are watching the humans for the centaurs. There's also other animals that the centaurs have as like pets that like eat things. And so that's that provides the counterpoint, this sort of brutal counterpoint to the, the society that's starting to develop outside of the ship and has been falling apart on the inside of the ship. As things get worse on the inside of the ship, we'll learn later um, once once uh, the centaur portion of this is kind of over. Ultimately, what happens is they send a note back with Chipsy 
that says, hey, come rescue us. This is where we're at. Max can remember every landmark that he passes to where they're at, but he can't run off because he doesn't want to leave Ellie behind. And if they both leave, the centaurs will catch them. So they also can't break the tethers that they have tied around their legs. There's some sort of unknown and unexplained technology that they don't understand. And it seems to be like a live rope or snake that holds fast around their ankle and bonds them to a tree or to a centaur's back or to each other or whatever. And that's how they kind of keep them leashed. To pass time, Ellie and Sam build a 3D chessboard in the dirt with using pine cones. And they start to play. And they play a lot. That gives us an opportunity to explore the passage of time. They get to the point where Ellie starts to finally kind of crack from the uncertainty of where they're at. They're being fed and given water and, I guess, taken for hygiene every day. But they've been there for a long, long time. They wake up one morning and Sam is there. And he's like, don't don't make a sound. He uses his gun to shoot the things holding their legs and they all take off. We learn from this during this time as they make their escape that the captain is dead. He They don't know whether he killed himself or he died of a heart attack. But... He's dead. And that Symes is also dead. And Symes is dead because Sam killed him. Because Symes, when the captain died, Symes sort of proclaimed himself king of the ship uh, and tried to kill Mr. Kelly, who was technically the person who should be in charge. When this happened, he drew a gun on Kelly. Sam happened to be there. Sam grabbed onto him and broke his neck. We learn then that Sam is a, a sort of AWOL space marine, and he's ripping tough. We suspect, you know, the audience suspected that in the from the other encounters that he had with people that had to be physical. But now it's like blade clear. Uh, on their way back, they get jumped by more centaurs. And as they fight their way out, Sam sort of throws a rear guard action together by himself, getting Eldreth and, and Max back to the ship. Because Max has to be on the ship now because he has to be the captain because no one else can take the ship up. So Sam's whole mission was to rescue Max. Eldreth is a, is a, a good... She, she would have been collateral damage and they would have felt bad. But if she would have died, that would have been okay as long as Max got back because there's no other way off this planet. So Max gets back and restores the rules that the crew has followed. Now they've abandoned the village. The people that got married, one of them got eaten. And that's why they abandoned it because it wasn't safe anymore. And everyone is very agitated because they've seen all the shit go down. And word has been traveling through the sort of the backroom channels of all the problems that have taken place on this ship with... With uh, Mr. Hendricks, Mr. Hendricks dying and with the captain dying and other stuff. So what happens is when Max gets promoted and uncomfortably puts on the captain's his captain's clothes and his ribbons and all of his epaulets and other shit that he doesn't understand or care about, he learns that his job is it's important to be an astrogator, absolutely, but right now it's more important that he establishes calm on the ship so that there is no mutiny. Once they take off, he comes out and he like encourages people to dance at dinner. He makes small talk. He acts without as if he has no care in the world, whatever, and 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 sort of calms down the entire passenger compartment and 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 regular crew by his presence and this sort of seeming restoration of normalcy. He also says that his plan is to fly them back to figure out where the anomaly was that they burped out of. And get them back to normal space. Not only does he say that he thinks he can do it. He expects fully well that he will be able to do it. And it shouldn't be an issue. He has no idea how this is going to work. By the way. But he, he manages to do it. And that's the that's the beauty of the last third of this book. Or the last. The third act of this book. Is that he's faster than the computer is. 
but he's not so fast that he can't make mistakes, and he knows that because that's why they are where they are. Even though no one, he didn't make a mistake, the others did. And he begins to doubt his own skills as they're getting to the point where they're calculating that the anomaly jump and they have to give the engine X number of, you know, light years of thrust to get them through this this anomaly. And it's at that point, much like in Star Wars, he can feel the presence of Dr. Hendricks on the bridge with him. And he knows then that his figures are all correct. And boof, they pop through. And as soon as they see the stars on the other side of this little jump, they know that they are back where they're supposed to be. And they're able to carry on towards uh, Nova Terra to get everybody off the ship uh, at the final destination that they were expected to land at. They're they're there late, yes, but they're there. The epilogue of the book is that Max goes back home. Sam dies, and they give him a, a burial. Uh, Max goes back home. He's at the farm, which is all dilapidated. Somebody's busted all the windows out of the house. The place is a wreck, and he's laying in the grass, and he's watching as the train comes through the tunnel, goes through those three loops, and goes back into the other tunnel. And it brings us back to that wonder he had at the very beginning. And uh, the guild, because of... His, his actions was allowed him to stay on, to instate him as, a, as an astrogator. They put him on another ship because they couldn't demote him on a ship that, that he had served on. That wouldn't have been cool to make him not the captain. So he's like a junior-level astrogator on some other ship in the worry hole over there and now has enough money to live comfortably. Uh, Ellie went back to her to her father's place and married Putsy and, and, and lives with him and with Mr. Chipsy. And, you know, astrogators shouldn't have wives anyway. That's kind of something Max says earlier and, and sort of sums it up there again. And she sort of asks him at some point to come and, and visit any sort of shrugs and decides to take a taxi to the train station so he can take the, the bullet train so he can get to Earthport. That's where the book ends. Anyway, like I said, all of those things are things I liked. I liked the way that they, he folded space. I liked the, the structure of the society on the ship. I liked the way that he employed rules as, as, as guideposts that you could be flexible around and because of that you could if you manipulated them right you could you'd never get so far ahead that you got lost but you could get far enough ahead that you could hop skip and jump and stay ahead of being caught like that uh stuff that i didn't like there was very little that i didn't like there's a lack of sensory information like they eat a lot of soup but i don't know what it tastes like I don't know what the inside of the ship smells like. No one ever goes to the bathroom. Like th- this is all like basic complaint stuff. Um, that in more modern novels tends to probably get overdone. Doesn't need to be in this book, so it's not. Uh, I don't love the way he writes Ellie's character because all of Heinlein's women sound like boys or or men, and all of them tend to be sort of either incredibly sexual or completely unsexual. In this case, with Elle. It's completely unsexual. This one segment in the book where where they're they're on Halcyon and they're wishing on a star. This is right before they have to go back to the ship because um, Doctor Hendricks is dead. And at Halcyon, there are more meteorites than anywhere else in 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 uh, in, in in space compared to Earth, I guess, or or I forget how it's described, but it's like there's more meteorites than than Max has ever seen before. And he says, "Oh, look, a shooting star!" And 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 he says, "Well, wish on it." He wishes for something stupid like, you know, his astrogator's license. And she says, I, well, I bet your wish will come true tonight, which is clearly her sort of hitting on him. And he sort of thinks to himself like, oh, I, I bet I could have kissed her tonight if I wasn't an idiot. And that's as close as you get to them having a relationship that's non-platonic. 
And is it realistic? Yeah, I guess. Was it more than I wanted to see? I don't know. Again, Heinlein's women, especially in like the 50s, are sort of, they're pretty much just guys. So, I, I don't know. It's not great. We get a we get a lot of time with uh, with with Mr. Chips that in other hands would become s- somewhat annoying, and in this case, it never really does. And when Heinlein finally uses him as a plot device to to bring the coordinates kind of of where Max and 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 Ellie are 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 being held captive to the ship, so that someone will come and try and rescue them. And, and it doesn't really work. That's when I appreciated how much thought Heinlein seems to have put into this animal, this animal character. Uh, because Ellie is sure that he, Mr. Chips will succeed. Max is pretty sure Mr. Chips won't succeed. And, and ultimately what we learn from Sam is that he finds Mr. Chips in his screaming in his cage. Someone has put him in his cage uh, on the ship. And he keeps crying out for Ellie, 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 Ellie. And, and Sam figures out, well, if I just release this friggin' thing, I can probably follow it to wherever she is being held, and I can rescue them. And that's what happens. So Sam never sees the note because it gets lost somewhere between when they let Mr. Chips go and when Mr. Chips gets put in his cage. So no one ever sees the note from, from Max as to what their coordinates are or what predicament they're in. Technology that, that Heinlein makes mundane, even though it was before it was invented... And it's Monday now. Uh, there isn't really any in this book. Hilariously, though, this giant starship appears to be controlled by a Univac computer. So <laughs> there's 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 this discussion in like of of golden age science fiction that's ongoing is that all of the golden age authors saw robots as the future, and very few of them saw computing as the future. And that's really sort of evidenced here in that, you know, Heinlein models the ship's computer, the navigational computer on like the Univac, Univac 1, which came out in 1951. And at the time was the most advanced computer in, in, I guess, in in business at the time. And it was, you know, deployed at the Pentagon and it was deployed at like the Air Force Academy and all these universities and MIT and stuff. But it was very good at, very fast at doing calculations. And how you entered those calculations was by flipping toggle switches on these giant toggle boards and manually inputting bits and bytes. The story takes place hundreds of years in the future, from 1951. And Heinlein can't seem to grasp that a computer is any different than, than it is in 1953. So the big computer that's on the bridge in the worry hole of the, uh, the Asgard has a computer technician, computer mate, and all he does is he punches in calculations with these binary toggle switches, on switch, off switch, on switch, off switch, until they get a certain number of lights, and then it spits out a paper tape that he reads and gets more calculations, and then he does the same thing over and over again, and he spits out more tape and he reads that, and there's a lag between him putting all this stuff in and the tape coming out, and this is exactly the way computers worked in 1950, 1951, 1953. And Heinlein is unable to see past that. There's no CRT displays. There's no haptic input with like a keyboard or anything else. It's always just flick, 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 punch and go. So you're not even putting in commands. You're just putting in figures and it's spitting out other figures. The very most rudimentary type of of digital 
digital computing that that we had was with the Univac. So that's that's kind of funny as you read through it. I mean, to the point where, like, if you watch classic Star Trek, which only came out, you know, 13, 12, 13 years after the show, and you're looking at a starship that's traveling at, at, at the speed of light or close to it or faster than in the case of Star Trek, and it's so sleek and and has view screens and not cameras that, that take photographic plates that you compare with other photographic plates, that the technology to power this interstellar craft seems incredibly rudimentary, even by 1950 standards. And yet here it is being used in a way that was engaging for me. There's a bit where Max first comes to the worry hole, introduces himself to everybody, or is introduced to everybody and starts to do his job. And the way that Highline progresses from that point to where Max is the captain is that the wonder of what he's being involved in goes down and the practical hardworking nature of what he's asked to do goes up and then that starts to go down and the responsibility for what he has to do goes up so there's this like sort of three three sine wave three or three crested sine wave of 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 max on the bridge that's really interesting is from a character study and that's how he learns the job, why he learns the importance of the job and all the mechanics of it and how big and vast it is to why he learns that the job is less important than his doing the job. And that's what he learns at the end. So anyway, as I know this isn't technology, but that's that's, that's what we got for this book. We don't have any. Uh, stuff that's problematic, again, there's not much. Um, I, I outlined all that. And uh, what I didn't do in the last review of Podcane of Mars was give this book, was give Podcane a star rating, which... I included on the Tumblr page is two stars. Five stars being the, the pinnacle of science fiction that I consider is a Starship Troopers. And this this book, Starman Jones, which you should go and read, is definitely a four, four and a half star uh, read. You can bang through it in no time because, again, it's not super complicated. It's juvie fiction, so the sentence structure is pretty simple. The ideas are complicated, but not sort of how Clement, you need to know chemistry to understand the plot, complicated. And the orbital mechanics and stuff are all really kind of cool and don't get super math heavy like some of Heinlein's stuff is known to do. Definitely fun. Would this make a good movie or like a TV series? This 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 one could be this one could be done and be, and be a lot of fun. Uh, probably as a movie. Would it make for a, a, a good TV series? I you probably have to add too much to it to make it worthwhile, and you definitely have to make Eldreth a different kind of character to make her interesting, at least in, as far as TV goes for for time being. I wanted to include that in the podcast of Mars discussion, and I sort of forgot to to follow that up with. Though is 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 uh, should Podcane be a TV show? No, it's 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 not. Should it be a movie? Nope. There's no reason for it to be a movie. This is much better suited to that kind of to a film because the majority of the well, I guess the you could do it on a lower budget because the majority of the action is do we get this ship through this hole? That's where the action is, and. Heinlein is able to build verbal tension um, in the story during those transitions in a way that is... I went back and reread each of the transition segments that he uses in this book, that he, he writes in this book, to watch and, and sort of study the way that he, he builds them. And he does it in such a way that something as simple as making calculations and adjusting the velocity of the ship can become incredibly tense and, and interesting. And I, I'm, I haven't really cracked how he does that yet. 
and it could be a combination of all different characters and all the plots that's led to this point, how much I liked Max as a character, but each time he does it, especially the one where things go wrong, it's incredibly interesting to read and very, very fulfilling to finish. So, I don't know. Maybe for low budget, this could be a lot of fun. All you need is a bunch of naval uniforms and some people who seem to be dressed like, you know, I want to say like <laughs> ship passengers in the late 1890s or, you know, that you would find like on the Titanic who are, who are going to dinner with the captain and let's have some music. Oh, yes, yes. And, and they seem to be that sort of class of people. Uh, which doesn't surprise me, I guess, for Heinlein, who traveled a lot, I think a lot by ship. So he was, he was amongst that group a lot in his, in his, his Tramp Royale days. So it, it's, uh, it's fun. Anyway, so again, should you read Starman Jones? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun read. I burned through this book in no time and I and I loved every page of it. In fact, I'm I'm probably when I'm done with all of this going to go back and reread it because I liked it so much. I didn't think I would. I'm surprised that I that I that I waited this long to read it. I've had this book in my library for like 15 or 16 years now. I bought it for a nickel at a library sale or a dime maybe. And uh it's totally worth the money. So, worth reading. Definitely a fun piece of golden age science fiction and a lot of fun. So, yeah, all right. Well, there you go. That's Starman Jones. We finished a little faster than we did last time. That's good. 60 minutes seems to be about right for these these things. And with a book that's only 260 pages, I think. Hold on, let me check. 260 pages just about. Uh, seems about right. The next book in queue that I have pulled from the shelves is The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, which is I know is one of the future history stories. I don't know if this one falls into the future history's timeline or not. I'll have to go look. But uh, I'm looking forward to starting that one probably on Sunday this week. And I don't know that I'll have that one read as quickly because that seems to be like a considerably longer book than Starman Jones and especially considerably longer than Podkin of Mars. But uh, I'll keep you posted. Until then, hey, you can listen to me uh, pontificate on funny sh- stuff about history with my friend Bill with one L at Twibley or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. And uh, soon enough, you'll be able to hear me give an exhaustive interview to Monadnock Underground about my story Jobber and writing and writers groups and other foolishness whenever that comes out. And that'll that'll both appear at their podcast, Monadnock Underground, and it'll appear here because I worked out a cross-posting agreement with them when I agreed to be interviewed. So we get that going for us. You'll also get a, a, a freshly read and well put together, as far as I'm concerned, version of Jobber for your ear balls. Anyway, you can reach me at jrdorigo at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. I'm on Instagram. I think it's the same name. I have a Tumblr blog where a review of this book will appear in text, which is considerably different than me just talking about it into the audio, so you may want to go read that. It's jrdorigo, and my blog's name is Crap. The Podcane of Mars one is up. If you want to go read that, it's like seven pages long. It's good stuff. You can also reach me on Facebook, and that's pretty much it. I don't ever go to MySpace if that's even a thing anymore. So sort of Facebook, Instagram, which I don't use really, or email, and you can catch me. And if you say hi in Messenger, I'll probably talk to you. Until then, man, uh, or man, ladies, uh, eight-legged puppies and assorted centaurs, peace and chicken grease, uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, keep watching the skies or whatever. Bye.